Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before we begin our episode today, I want to take a moment to thank five of our supporters on Patreon. These people are patrons of the March of History. Their names are, and I'm only going to say first names, Giancarlo, Ray, Peggy, Carrie, and Laurie. Thank you all so much. You are patrons of the March of History. You have joined me on this journey. And much like the Medici of the Renaissance who supported Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, you have now put forward money to support the artwork that is the March of History. The March of History may not seem like art at first glance, but it is historical tales told in an in an oral format, which is a form of art that goes back as far as human history itself. So you have put forward your hard-earned money to help contribute to the March of History, and I cannot thank you enough. We are on this journey together, and the March of History will only get better and better with your contributions. So thank you. Now, if you want to become one of these patrons, if you want to join us on this journey, you can go to patreon.com slash the March of History. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the March of History. There's also a link in the summary to every single podcast episode. And we have recently launched a PayPal account, which does not have a friendly link. So I have also listed that in the summary section of every podcast episode that we put out. So on the PayPal, if you want to make a single donation for uh, you know one time or donate per episode, you can do that. Or on the Patreon, if you want to donate per month, you can donate on the Patreon. So a few different options for you now. But thank you so much for your support, our patrons, and I'll talk to you in the episode. This is The March of History, episode 49, The Second Invasion of Britannia. In our last episode, just to recap real quick, Caesar had his debacle of a first voyage to Britain. It had lasted roughly a month, this voyage, and brought back no material wealth to Rome and very little additional information on Britain as a place. Yet, despite all of these setbacks, Caesar and his army did make it back to Gaul in one piece. And at the end of the day, the first expedition to Britannia was a propaganda sensation in Rome, which was probably always the goal to begin with. And that is where we pick up episode 49 at the end of 55 BCE, a year that saw Caesar go to Britain for the first time and bridge the Rhine for the first time. Now, Caesar and his legions are back from their first British expedition. So does Caesar kick up his heels and get some much-needed R&R that winter? Does he allow his army to do the same? Absolutely not. Caesar does neither of these things As always, Caesar has that relentless, that demonic energy that exhausts his opponents. And so he orders his legates to have the legions build as many ships as possible over the winter and to have the old ships refitted. Caesar is going back to Britain. And this time he plans to do it bigger and better than the last time and to learn from the mistakes of the past as much as possible. 
For a number of reasons, Caesar even changes the design of the ships, having them made lower, broader, and with both oars and sails to increase their speed. And in total, over the winter, 600 new transport vessels will be built by Caesar's legionaries, along with 28 war galleys. They will even import rigging for the ships from Spain. This is a true international shipbuilding operation at this point that Caesar has going. Now, you may be wondering, why is Caesar going back to Britain? Why would he do this to himself again? It went so badly the first time. Well, Caesar gives some reasons. Ostensibly, Caesar's going back because the British tribes never do send him the hostages they promised to send him on the mainland. This is according to Cassius Dio. And, I mean, big surprise, we said in the last episode that unless Caesar was on their doorstep with an army demanding hostages, those hostages were never going to be sent to Caesar and to the Romans. But even ancient writer Cassius Dio says that this was an excuse by Caesar and that Caesar would have always found a different pretext to invade even if the Britons had sent the hostages he had demanded. So that's the reason Caesar gives, but let's look at maybe the actual reasons why Caesar would want to invade a second time. There is, after all, the reason that Cassius Dio gave us at the end of our last episode, the quote that I read to you, where Dio says that the Romans magnified Caesar's accomplishments to a remarkable degree and how the Romans celebrated their expected gains from the conquest of Britain as if they had already had them in their hands and therefore voted Caesar 20 days of public thanksgiving. Well, All of this is great, but it likely put a lot of pressure on Caesar to live up to the hype and to do more in Britain than to spend a month on a reconnaissance with only two legions. Caesar needed to show real returns. He needed to bring back material wealth to Rome, or at the very least, if he couldn't do that, he had to put on a bigger show than the first voyage to live up to all this hype and to avoid being labeled as all hype or or all flash and no bang or whatever the ancient Roman pre-gunpowder equivalent of that saying would be. And the final reason Caesar has for going back to Britain a second time is that he saw how wild Rome went about the first voyage and how big of a propaganda success it was, so... Why not plan a second, bigger, grander, better invasion of Britain to drum up even more hype and even more propaganda in Rome? But Caesar is a very, very busy man, so after the orders are given to build new ships and to refit the old ships, Caesar takes off for Nearer Gaul or Cisalpine Gaul. These are two different names for one province that Caesar has, Cisalpine or Nearer Gaul, and he heads there to perform his administrative and judicial duties, which he has to perform as a proconsul or governor of this province. And Caesar spends his winter there, and as he's finishing up in Nearer Gaul, he hears nudes of raids into one of his other provinces, a province known as Illyricum, which is basically what we would today consider the Balkans. So, rather than leaving Nearer Gaul and heading to rejoin his legions at the end of the winter as he normally would, Caesar races to Illyricum instead to head off this crisis. Now, these raids are not significant in the story of the Gallic War, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on them. Instead, I'm going to let historian Adrian Goldsworthy sum up both the raids and Caesar's response to these raids in a single sentence. Goldsworthy says, quote, he, meaning Caesar, hastened to the spot, 
raised local levies, and pressured the tribe responsible into making peace. End quote. And just like that, very efficiently, the crisis has been averted and Caesar is able to return his attention to his planned invasion of Britannia. And so he returns to nearer Gaul and from there leaves to rejoin his army in their winter quarters. So after a very busy 55 BCE that saw Caesar bridged the Rhine and saw his first expedition to Britannia, we are now headed into the new year of 54 BCE. Caesar begins this year with a tour of the winter quarters of his army, and there he sees how industrious his legions have been in his absence, and so he praises the officers and their men. He's amazed that they've produced 600 transport vessels and 28 war galleys. In addition to refitting all the old ships over the winter, they have not been sitting around. This is, must have been backbreaking work, but these legionaries are used to this. Life in Caesar's army is just filled with backbreaking work, but they seem to love it as long as it is under Caesar's orders. Caesar then tells his fleet to gather at Portus Itius, which we think is probably modern-day Bologna in France. And before Caesar can actually join the fleet himself at Portus Itius or Bologna, he has some other business he has to attend to. You see, a Gallic tribe along the Rhine, known as the Treveri, has been consistently missing Caesar's Gallic assemblies and ignoring his commands. Now, these assemblies that Caesar holds are not optional, and neither are Caesar's commands. After all, there's a reason why they're called commands by Caesar and not requests. And if you do not attend Caesar's assemblies, and if you ignore his commands, Caesar will kick down your front door with a Roman army and likely burn a lot of your houses down. These are not optional things. And if all that wasn't enough to get the Treveri put onto Caesar's bad list, there's also the fact that there's been rumors going around that the Treveri are seeking support from beyond the Rhine. That means they are trying to invite Germans over the Rhine. And you remember in our previous episodes, we said that Caesar built, or one of the reasons he built the bridge over the Rhine was to teach the Germans a lesson to let them know that they were not safe beyond the Rhine from him and that they could not cross over to raid Gaul at will. So his worst nightmare is having a Gallic tribe on the border with the Rhine and Germania willingly inviting Germans over, you know, after Caesar just taught them that lesson so recently. So to put the Treveri in their place, Caesar marches off with four legions with light kit and 800 cavalry. Now again, like the issues with Illyricum, the raids that Caesar took care of already, the issues with the Treveri at this point are not so important, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on them. Instead, we're just going to kind of skim through the scenario. So among the Treveri, there was a dispute between two tribal leaders. Caesar arrives on the scene with his army, and he quickly chooses to support the leader who has more amenable aims to Caesar and to Rome that will be better for Caesar's cause. And as a result, the rival leader that is not pro-Rome ends up surrendering to Caesar, and Caesar takes 200 hostages from the Treveri as kind of penalty for their behavior and to make sure they behaved well in the future. And Caesar lets them off relatively light in all of this, rather than chasing down the rival leader and killing him and his supporters, mainly because Caesar is determined to spend this year, 54 BCE, in Britain, not 
searching through the Gallic forest to find Treveri leaders and, and hunting them down. I mean, that could take all summer long. Caesar is determined not to get bogged down in Gaul. He needs to go back to Britain. So all of this taken care of, Caesar promptly heads back to meet up with his fleet at Portus Itius, and he then summons leaders from all over Gaul to come to Portus Itius and to bring with them contingents of cavalry. And in all these leaders bring forth 4,000 Gallic cavalry to Portus Itius to where Caesar is waiting. Now, Caesar has summoned the leadership of Gaul since he will be taking a larger force with him to Britain this time than he took in the first voyage, and he doesn't want Gaul to be able to rebel in his absence. So what he does is he's going to take almost all of these leaders to Britain with him. That way they are a part of his voyage, they can't stay in Gaul and foment rebellion, and the most loyal of the Gallic leaders, the ones that he believes have Rome's interest in mind and are friends of his, he will leave those men in Gaul to lead Gaul and patrol in his absence. This whole strategy has the added benefit of essentially allowing Caesar to take the leaders and aristocracy of Gaul to Britain with him as hostages to make sure that their tribes do not rebel and make sure that they behave in his absence. Now, one of these Gallic leaders being forced to come with Caesar to Britain is a man named Dumnorix of the Idui. Now, you may remember Dumnorix from one of our previous episodes or a few of our previous episodes. He is that troublemaker that was guiding the Helvetii migration at one point. He is the troublemaker that connived to have the Idui, his tribe, withhold food from the Romans during their campaign against the Helvetii. And the only reason Caesar had put up with Dumnorix and all of his bad behavior during those times was because Dumnorix had an older brother who was very influential, a druid named Divikiacus. And Divikiacus was a great supporter and, and maybe even a friend of Caesar. So for Divikiacus's sake, Caesar had looked past all of Dumnorix's failings. But Dumnorix is up to his old tricks again, and his most recent bit of troublemaking was to claim at an assembly of the Idui that Caesar was planning on making him, meaning Dumnorix, king of the Idui. Now this is completely false. Dumnorix has just made this up wholesale. It's a huge lie, but it's very clever for several reasons. One, it makes the Idui resentful against Caesar, because yes, Dumnorix is an aristocrat, he's one of their own, but they don't have a king, the Idui. And this idea that Caesar's just going to force Dumnorix on them as their king goes against you know, a lot of their principles, and, and they don't like that, having their freedom usurped in such an outright way. It's also clever because it gives Dumnorix additional clout. He gets to go around saying, hey, you better be nice to me. One day I'm going to be king very soon. Caesar's decreed it, right? Give me lots of gifts. Uh, listen to the things I say. So it brings a lot of additional clout and additional prestige to Dumnorix. And the third reason why this is very clever is that the Idui at this point are too afraid to go to Caesar to complain about this because they are afraid it will be seen as a criticism of Caesar and his rule in the area, and they don't want to get on Caesar's bad side since he has so much power and he has these powerful legions. 
So, I mean, if they were to go to Caesar and say, hey, Caesar, why did you put them Norks in charge of our country? Why are you making him our king? Caesar would have been like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but instead, the IW are too afraid to go to Caesar and ask why he's done this because they think that even asking will be seen as questioning his rule. But regardless of the fact that the Aedui are too afraid to approach Caesar about this, nevertheless, Caesar has many contacts in the Gallic communities, many spies, and so eventually he does get wind of this through some of his contacts. And for Caesar, this is one more reason to keep Dumnorks close at hand in Britain, right? One more reason not to let him stay in Gaul. The guy's already making up lies and, and causing trouble, and that's with Caesar in Gaul. So you can imagine what Dumnorks would get up to if Caesar takes five legions and heads off to Britain. Now, Dumnorks, on the other hand, has no intention of going to Britain with Caesar. First, Dumnorks claims that he had no idea how to sail, and so therefore he wouldn't be of much use, and also he's afraid of the sea. Now, Caesar's obviously not buying this. Next, Dumnorks claims that he has religious obligations that require him to stay in Gaul. Caesar, I'm sorry, I would love to go to Britain with you, but I got this whole religious festival, I got this whole, you know, the rights that I have to oversee, so, you know, good luck in Britain, would have loved to have gone with you, but I have a whole religious thing, and you respect that, right? Absolutely not. You know, Caesar does not believe any of this. And I'm sure in a very diplomatic way, Caesar essentially tells Dumnorks to cut the crap. He's coming to Britain whether he likes it or not. And Dumnorks, seeing that he couldn't weasel his way out of going to Britain with Caesar, then decides to take a different approach. He starts talking to different Gallic leaders who are now all gathered at Portus Itius, and he begins to take individuals aside and tries to bring them over to his point of view and to stoke rebellion among them. And Caesar says of this in his commentaries, quote, he, meaning Dumnorix, tried to frighten them. And he's talking about the other Gallic leaders. Not without reason, he asserted, was Gaul being stripped of all her aristocracy. Caesar was afraid to kill them in sight of Gaul, but planned instead to take them all to Britain and there put them to death. He pledged his word to the rest, and demanded an oath that they should carry out whatever they saw was to Gaul's advantage. A number of informers reported this to Caesar. End quote. And so you can see this is a bit conniving and a bit clever on Dumnorix's part to have these people take an oath that they should do, how does he put it, should carry out whatever they saw was to Gaul's advantage. Well, you can see if, if you took this oath, it would be very easy for Dumnorix to twist what was in Gaul's advantage to match up with what's in Dumnorix's advantage. And pretty soon your oath is requiring you to fight on behalf of Dumnorix rather than on behalf of Gaul. But as Caesar says, he is aware of all of this. He has spies and informants giving him updates. And so Caesar says on this, quote, He, meaning Caesar, saw Dumnorix's madness spreading abroad. And so it was his duty to watch out that neither he nor the Republic suffered harm, end quote. And in fact, Caesar has quite a bit of time to spend spying on Dumnorix at this time, because for 25 days in Portus Itius, the fleet is delayed from departing due to a strong northwestern wind. And during this time, Caesar even took steps to win Dumnorix over to his side, but with no luck. And the whole while, while Caesar's trying to win him over, he's also continuing his spying on Dumnorix. 
Finally, after 25 days, the winds shift and Caesar gives the order for the fleet to set sail. And as everyone is focused on getting ready to embark and distracted by all the chaos around them of trying to get these thousands of men and supplies onto these ships, Dumnorix gathers his Idoe cavalry and slips out of camp without Caesar noticing and heads for home. When Caesar does learn of Dumnorix's departure, he brings the whole operation of ancient D-Day 2.0, we'll call it, to a grinding halt. This expedition to Britain, which was two and a half times the size of the previous expedition, is all put on hold because of the troublemaking of one man, Dumnorix. And we can imagine Caesar, the man who always wants to press forward at lightning pace, must have had steam coming out of his ears at having to put the whole operation on hold for Dumnorix. And at this point, Caesar has had enough of Dumnorix's constant antics, and so he sends a large cavalry force out to drag Dumnorix back to camp. And he gives this force orders that if Dumnorix offers armed resistance, he orders them to kill Dumnorix. The cavalry force heads out and duly catches up with Dumnorix and his fellow Adui cavalry and orders them to return to camp. Dumnorix, for his part, refuses, and Caesar says he begins to defend himself by force while repeatedly shouting that, quote, he was a free man and a citizen of a free state. And that is a quote from, at least from Caesar, that he says Dumnorix said. In the end, it didn't help Dumnorix at all, this brave speaking. Caesar's men surround Dumnorix and kill him on the spot. And the Idui cavalry that were there with Dumnorix don't join in to help him. Instead, they watch this happen, and in the end, they ride back to the camp as Caesar had ordered them to. It's a striking story. Dumnorix seems like nothing but a troublemaker until his final moments. And the fact that he chose to die rather than to go to Britain with Caesar might have meant that he really did expect to be killed in Britain. Of course, he was wrong about this, this was just paranoia, but he really did believe his paranoia. Also, these words that Dumnorix is supposed to have said repeatedly, that he is a, quote, free man and a citizen of a free state, are very compelling words. And especially if you're someone from a country today that values freedom and individual liberties, these are hard words to look past. And as always, I find it fascinating that Caesar would even bother to include these final words of Dumnorix into his commentaries, or the whole story for that matter. It's a story that in the end makes Dumnorix look better than he had throughout the entire commentaries. It gives him that final moment of redemption, and therefore makes Caesar not necessarily look like the good guy in this situation. Now, at the same time, it's stories like these that give Caesar credibility in the commentaries. The fact that he does tell stories where he doesn't come out looking good, it kind of gives him some credibility so that when he does tell stories about him picking up a shield and jumping on the front line, you don't necessarily just roll your eyes and be like, yeah, sure you did, bud, right? (laughs) Because he's willing to tell stories where he doesn't look good, it therefore makes us believe more so the stories where he does or where he is the hero of the story. Now, on this whole story of Dumnorix, historian Adrian Goldsworthy makes an interesting point. He says, quote, 
Demnorx did not lack courage and challenged his attackers by yelling out that he was a, and this is a quote within the quote, free man from a free people, end quote. And then Goldsworthy continues, although none of his warriors stood with him, he chose to fight and was cut down. It was an openly brutal demonstration of Caesar's power and the inability even of one of Gaul's wealthiest aristocrats to stand against him, end quote. And the other Gallic leaders certainly would have taken note of this and would not have liked the way Dumnorx was treated. So after this whole mess with Dumnorx as a precaution, Caesar decides to leave his right-hand man, Titus Labienus, in Gaul to keep an eye on everything while he's away. And he gives Titus Labienus command of three legions and 2,000 cavalry. And Titus Labienus seems to have been given relative freedom to react to events in Gaul as he saw fit. He was also given the responsibility for sending food over to Britain to help supply Caesar's army that would be venturing there. And finally, he was given the command to secure the ports in Gaul for Caesar's return. Meanwhile, soon after the Dumnorx affair has been settled, Caesar and his fleet set sail for Britain at sunset. With him, Caesar takes five legions and 2,000 cavalry this time, so a much bigger force. And Caesar claims that the total size of his fleet was 800 ships. Now, for some hours, a nice gentle breeze carries the fleet towards Britain until midnight when the breeze dies and Caesar's ship and presumably the whole fleet with him are carried off course by the tide. Now, eventually, the fleet ends up being carried too far by the tide, and at dawn the next day, the Romans and Caesar see Britain being left behind to their port side, as Caesar says. Now, according to Caesar, the tide then changes directions, and this allows the Roman fleet to start rowing back towards Britain. And, in fact, Caesar says that it was only due to his legionaries rowing without a break on the transport vessels that they managed to keep pace with the warships and actually make it to Britain. In the end, the fleet lands on a beach pretty near to where Caesar had landed the year previously, we think. You know, it's, it's uncertain. Caesar doesn't give exact locations, and they land at about midday. This time, in their second landing on the British coast, Caesar and the Romans don't encounter any Britons waiting to fight them or contest their landing. And it's only later that Caesar would find out from prisoners that a large host of Britons had gathered to resist the Roman invasion. But when they had seen hundreds of Roman ships on the horizon and realized that this fleet coming towards them would be much bigger than the one that they encountered last year, they decided that it was a fight they couldn't win and they left the coast to move to higher ground. So, after landing, Caesar and his troops set about building a fortified camp along the coast. And not long after they land, Caesar is able to get his hands on some locals, which he duly takes as prisoners. Now, these prisoners tell Caesar and the Romans that the British army had retreated inland, and even tell Caesar where they had retreated to. So, Caesar... Moving at his customary breakneck speed, then marches 40 cohorts and 1,700 cavalry out of his camp in the middle of the night to go find the Britons. And if you're wondering, well, how many troops is 40 cohorts? We don't know exactly. A cohort contained 
480 soldiers at full strength. So that would mean that if 40 cohorts were at full strength, that would be 19,200 soldiers. Of course, Caesar's army has been fighting for a number of years now. His cohorts are not at full strength, so we don't know the exact number he would have had with him. But that kind of gives you a ballpark, maybe, that at full strength, they're 480 soldiers, and they are under full strength. Now, the remaining 10 cohorts and 300 cavalry are left behind to guard the camp in case the British troops try to attack it. Caesar then marches with his 40 cohorts and 1,700 cavalry through the night to where the British are supposed to be, and this would have been the night after they landed. So, these troops were rowing without break to get to... Britain, and then they then had to build a fortified camp, and then immediately, no rest for them, they're marching off through the night into the darkness of Britain. And if you're wondering if Caesar has come up with any new strategy on how to guard his ships from these storms that kept hitting them on the British coast previously, well, Caesar says that this time around he wasn't too worried about his ships since they were anchored along a sandy, low-lying coast. There's different translations of what he's saying there, but essentially Caesar felt that the way the coastline was, it gave his ships added protection that this time they would be safe. Now, only time will tell if this assumption is right by Caesar, but Caesar is feeling pretty confident in leaving his ships behind. So like I said, Caesar and his army march through the night. They march 12 miles in total, and at dawn, they spot the British cavalry and chariots lined up behind a river. Now, this was probably the River Stour, I believe it's pronounced, S-T-O-U-R, or Stour, I'm not exactly sure. Google wasn't too much help, but I believe it's the River Stour. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that this would have been near to Canterbury. Caesar then says that the Roman cavalry, which, remember, would have been Gauls working as allies with the Romans, then engaged the British forces and the British cavalry and chariots retreated to a fortified area in a forest nearby. And Caesar says of this forest fortification that it was strong in both man-made and natural defenses, but doesn't say a lot more about it. So it may have been a, a British hill fort, we aren't exactly sure, but Caesar says that he believed that this location was used for intertribal warfare, since all the entrances to the fortified area were blocked by a large number of cut-down trees. Now, small parties of Britons would periodically come out of this forest and throw missiles at the Romans and then duck back into the forest where their fort was. And so Caesar, you know, has to do something about this. So he sends a seventh legion to take this fortified forest. Now, the seventh legion then forms a testudo and marches towards the forest fort. Now, if you're not familiar with the the testudo, testudo was Latin for tortoise. And it was a Roman military formation where the Roman soldiers would overlap their shields above their heads and make a sort of roof, while the soldiers in front and possibly the ones on the sides as well would hold up their shields. The soldiers in front would hold them in front of them as a sort of wall, and the ones on the side would put it to their sides. Now, all of this would enclose the Romans in shields and reminded the Romans of the tortoise's shell. And the Testudo formation allowed the Romans to block any arrows, javelins, or rocks thrown at them from above or even potentially from the sides. I'll go ahead and post a picture of a Testudo formation on both the March Fisheries Facebook and our Instagram so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. 
The 7th Legion then piles up a ramp against the fort and marches in and drives the British tribes out of the fort and out of the forest altogether. And in this whole exchange, the 7th Legion suffers very few casualties, but still, Caesar forbids them from pursuing the Britons very far. And the main reason he does this is because the terrain was unfamiliar to the Romans, and the day was getting on, and Caesar still wants them to build a fortified camp in this area. Plus, like I kind of hinted at earlier, the Roman soldiers have had a very busy few days. They have sailed from Gaul to Britain, which Caesar said had led to them rowing without a break. They had arrived and built a coastal camp. They had then marched 12 miles that night and basically got no rest. They then engaged with the British forces. They took the fort in the forest, and now they need to build another fortified camp. This is exhausting, backbreaking work. And there's no break in sight. Because the next morning, Caesar sends the cavalry and infantry out in three different divisions, or as Adrian Goldsworthy says, flying columns to pursue the Britons, while Caesar himself seems to have remained in the camp they had built the day before. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that it would have been normal for these three columns to burn and plunder as they go until the local leaders come to sue for peace. And they traveled a considerable distance, Caesar says, before catching up with the British rearguard. But just as they are catching up with the British rearguard, Caesar gets bad news from a messenger at the second Roman camp, the inland Roman camp that was built the day before. The messenger says that a storm has hit the coast again where Caesar's ships were anchored. He says that almost all of the Roman ships were damaged or washed up onto the shore, Apparently, the anchors and the ropes couldn't withstand the storm, and so all of the ships were dislodged from where they were anchored and were bashed against each other in the storm. So, Caesar recalls his legions that he had sent out against the Britons to the camp where he was currently at, and he then returns to the first camp by the coast where the ships are. Once back there, he sees that 40 of his ships are smashed so bad that they can't even be repaired. And Caesar says that only with considerable labor could the rest of the ships be repaired. Now, it really isn't surprising that another storm smashed Caesar's ships to pieces. What is surprising is that after the first voyage when this happened, Caesar doesn't seem to have learned anything. He still anchored all his ships with no harbor and hoped for the best. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy even points out that there was a harbor at the Watson Channel around the Isle of Thanet, which was not so far away from Caesar and his troops, and presumably Caesar didn't know about this, otherwise he would have used it, but maybe with some additional reconnaissance, he could have found this and, and saved himself a lot of trouble. So just like before, Caesar sets about fixing all the ships, he recalls all of the craftsmen from the legions that were at the second Roman camp further inland and summons more craftsmen from the legions that are still in Gaul. Caesar then orders Titus Labienus, his right-hand man who's overseeing Gaul, to have his legions there build as many ships as possible to replace the 40 that Caesar has lost. Next, Caesar sets everyone else to work, and over the next 10 days, the legions repair most of the ships, drag them all up onto the beach, the entire fleet, whether it's 800, like Caesar said, or a lesser number, it's still in the hundreds. It's a lot of ships. They're dragging them up using human back power and horsepower up onto the beach. 
And after doing that, they build a ditch and a rampart to extend from the existing coastal fort all the way down to where the ships are being beached to surround the ships. Now, like I keep saying, all of this is backbreaking work, and Caesar said that the soldiers had no breaks day or night. Now, these new fortifications that Caesar had them build that go from the existing camp by the coast all the way down to the beach and surround all the ships which have been pulled up onto land, historian Adrian Goldsworthy points out, would have helped protect these ships from attacks by enemies in Britain, but really would not have protected against the elements much at all. Which, in the end, I mean, that's what Caesar's hoping to do, is protect them from the elements. The British tribes have never burned his ships yet, right? It's the storms that keep getting to him. But after all of this backbreaking work is complete, Caesar heads back to the second Roman camp further inland where his legions and his cavalry await him. But by the time Caesar gets there, the situation has changed. It seems that Caesar's absence and him recalling his troops back to the camp has given the British tribes time to get their act together and to plan better. And a number of these British tribes that Caesar says had previously been at continual warfare with each other had decided to unite under the leadership of one single war leader. This leader was a man named Cassivellaunus, and he came from a tribe north of the River Thames. And for those who are not too knowledgeable or familiar with British geography or with the city of London, the Thames is the river that flows through modern London. And that is where we will end our episode today. In our next episode, which will be episode 50, Caesar and his legions will advance towards the River Thames to face this new British coalition. And we will get a glimpse through the eyes of Caesar into the culture and the habits of the British tribes of 54 BCE. But don't go yet. Let me just take a moment to thank all of the March of History's Patreon supporters. This podcast would not be possible without your help and your financial contributions. So thank you so much. And one thing I should mention, I mistakenly charged our patrons for the month of August where no episodes were released. That was an accident. I just forgot to pause the billing cycle. It can only be paused for one month at a time. You have to go back and pause it again if you want to do it for successive months. So that was a mistake on my part. I can't refund you for August, but instead what I did is I'm not charging anyone for the month of September because if I put out no episodes, you do not deserve to be charged. And again, thank you so much for your contributions. Now, if you aren't already following the March of History's Instagram, it's at the March of History. You really do need to follow it and stop living under a rock. I'm kidding, of course, but the March of History's Instagram is excellent. It's a visual format that will help you learn more about history in addition to this podcast. There are videos and pictures from all over Rome and Italy. There's pictures in, or videos of me talking about the Forum, about the Appian Way, about the island of Capri where the Emperor Tiberius once retreated to, talking about the Colosseum, the castle at Saguntum where Hannibal started the Second Punic War against uh, Rome and, and Rome fault Carthage, and much, much more. Videos from Germany, from Ireland, from Portugal, from Budapest and Prague. So there's a ton of history content and a bit of travel content on there too. 
And if you're interested in any of that, you will love our YouTube channel. It is Trevor Travels. You can find the link to the YouTube channel in the description of any given podcast episode. And that is a lot of travel content and also a lot of uh, history content as well. There's only two videos out right now, but they are great videos. And I have a ton more content. I'll be working on editing to create future videos for you, including my ventures to the Battlefield of Elysia, where Caesar's kind of crowning battle of the Gallic Wars took place. So go ahead and check out the YouTube channel and our Instagram channel. And don't forget to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. If you leave a five-star review and write something nice about what you like about the podcast, I will read it on here and you will get to hear your name or at least your username mentioned in your review read. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the March of History. That way you get notifications when new episodes come out. And I will talk to you in episode 50 of the March of History.